the reason that, that Bill Bain was my mentor was I have never known anyone who had such a desire for results and uh, who was so greedy, actually. I mean, he's, he was very, very interested in money. I can say this safely because he's dead, unfortunately. But, but um, you know, he, he, um, he worked out that the way that consulting firms could prosper was not to write reports, not to give presentations, not to have 100 slide decks, not to uh, even have the very best people working in the firm. The way to succeed was to focus on results. And the way to succeed in, in the way that the, the company itself should organize itself was totally unique against all other consulting firms in the world, both then and now. He said, we are only going to work for very few clients. We're only going to work for one player in an industry or a competitive system. And we're only going to work where we can work with the top person, the top executive in the client company and have that person regard us or regard the, the leading um, vice president or um, partner responsible for the work as an equal. And we will have fewer clients, but we will bill them 10 times, 20 times, some, in some cases 50 or 100 times what McKinsey, which was the venerable leader in the industry and had been for decades, um, would charge. Because we are going to deliver so fantastic results which can be objectively identified in terms of the increase in the value of the companies that we work for. And if we think we should be working on any particular project, we will suggest that. And we will expect the chief executive or whoever the top person in the firm, the chairman in some cases, uh, to actually agree that we shall do this work. And, you know, they might not agree instantly, but, you know, we will present the case which says, OK, it might cost you $20 million in consulting fees to do this, but you will make an extra £50 million profit and you'll make that profit every year, whereas you'll only pay us once. So, you know, he grew the firm by expanding the operation within the client. So, of course, he had to have large clients, which had many divisions and operated internationally and, and so on and so forth. And then got very acquisitive because, you know, you could do then an analysis of the acquisition target. And once you'd acquired it, you could just carry on doing the same thing and sort of, you know, basically send hundreds of bainies into, into the organisation. And it sounds pernicious and it sounds as though it's, you know, basically taking over the, the role of management. And that wasn't the case at all because the managers themselves were energised by these very odd people, the Bainers, who would also make them think about things, but had the tools of strategy, which were incredibly powerful. And Bain and Company produced fantastic results for its clients. And in fact, they had it audited by, um, uh, I can't remember, Price Waterhouse, Cooper, anyway, whoever it was. And they demonstrated that people who'd been clients of Bain and Company for a long period of time, the market value of the companies went up. And it only stopped, the music only stopped when the chief executive, you know, left the company or uh, died or got fired or whatever, and Bain & Company 
withdrew from the organisation. There was almost not a single case where Bain & Company worked at an intensive level in a, in a client organisation and did not produce fantastic results. I just admire Bill Bain so much for having come up with that idea. No one had thought of that before. It, it went totally against the idea that consultants should be, you know, limited role. They should go in and out of organisations and, um, you know, basically work on certain projects. No, he wanted it all. He wanted, he wanted to change the company. He wanted to make it more innovative. He wanted to make it vastly more profitable. He wanted to get it out of all the products and all the divisions that were losing money or not providing an adequate return on capital and so on and so forth. You know, not very difficult concepts. He wanted to have them in a position where they had the best portfolio, where they had star businesses and not where they had dogs. Um, and if they had question marks, which might become stars, you know, you were very selective in the ones that you put the investment into because not every question mark could become a star realistically. And, you know, it was just, it was a, it was sort of, a, it was like a it was like a Russian doll, you know, a, a doll within a doll that, you know, he had, he had the idea of the consulting firm which would do this. And then within the client organisations, he trained everyone to do it all. And, you know, the thing about Bill Bain, uh, it's true of Bruce Henderson as well, is Bill didn't work very hard and he didn't work very long hours. You know, I, was, I remember running into him in the, uh, in the lift when I was sort of, you know, basically interviewing and, and he was there in full tennis regalia <laughs> going up to the office in order to meet me. <laughs> I think he was the first five minutes a bit awkward. I don't think he wanted to be off the tennis court. But but you know, it was it was it was a wonderful system. We had everyone else working very hard and he was doing all the thinking. And then he trained his partners and mentored his partners, including Mitt Romney, to do the same thing. And Mitt was a fantastic guy. Uh, very, very successful started uh, or ran Bain Capital, which was another idea that, uh, that Bill Bain had. So, you know, Bill Bain, who said things like action drives out thought, you know, this was a man who didn't do the action, but did do the thinking. You know, he, he actually believed in what he preached and he actually did what he preached. Uh, and he had a wonderful life and uh, made a huge amount of money uh, and never worked hard. It was it was fantastic. <laughs> so those were my two mentors, and you know I don't think they realised how important they were to me either of them, not at all. But I thought you know the only thing I had was the common sense and the insight that sort of worked out what these people were doing and why they were so successful. Always a question would worth you, asking. Would you say that that Bill Bain? Uh, it almost feels to me like he, he almost 80 20 what BCG was doing and pulled the best key parts out of it. Absolutely right. I've never heard anyone say that, and I've never said it myself. But that's brilliant, Jason. That's exactly what he did. You know, he said, you know, the value isn't in presentations, the value isn't in short term projects, the value isn't sort of, you know, working for the head of, of Venezuela or, you know, for the XYZ division. You know, the value is in transforming a company. And if we can't do that, we're not even going to try. Uh, it's exactly what he did. Yeah. Yeah. And I, and I think about even the way he would sell 
to the account or to the CEO, right? And, and it's like when people go for a sales presentation, they think there's all these different things we have to do before, during, and after to, to close the account or to close the sale. And it's like he, he identified this one thing where you say you're the only company and CEO we're going to work with. And just that one idea kind of supersedes the 10 or 20 other things that you would normally have to do to, to sell an account. Yes, um, and, and also he would not... Um, he would not accept what all consultants previously had really accepted was that they were hired hands. They weren't quite on the same level as the client. The client was always more important. And Bill Bain had the chutzpah to, to actually say, you know, we've got to have an equal relationship and it won't work if we don't have an equal relationship. And if, you know, if they want to argue about our budgets, you know, well, we'll argue back because because we can justify having very high fees. And we, we, you know, we're the people who are going to think about what the next step should be, the next project should be. And it was, it was just a totally different um, concept. And you know the chief executives loved it because they actually acquired much more power and leverage themselves vis-a-vis um, -vis all the other people in the organisation because the people in the organisation had to go through the same process that Bain and Company went through of thinking analytically and intuitively about what was important for success in a particular business. It wasn't that they couldn't argue with Bain or with their boss, you know, but they had to operate within the terms of the system. In a way, I always think of it as slightly Stalinist, you know. <laughs> you know, you, it, under, under Stalin or under uh, the Russian communists generally, you know, it wasn't that you couldn't argue with the boss, although you might get shot or sent to Siberia, of course, but, but it was just that the whole concept was an ideology which sort of justified everything. I mean, it was sort of, you know, it, it was for the people. Well, who could possibly argue with something that was for the benefit of the people, even though the people didn't get a say in whether or not they agreed? But, but you know, it was that was the whole point, because, you know, companies that hired Bain and Company had to abide by the rules of strategy, which you had to be able to prove that, you know, if, a, if, a, if, if we wanted to close down a business, you know, you couldn't say, well, I don't think it's a good idea to close down the business because people have been working there for 50 years or 100 years or I like running this business. You actually had to argue against the idea that it had a weak competitive position and didn't make any money. Well, impossible. So in other words, you had to accept the logic of the system. But of course, why, sh why, why shouldn't you accept that if you're in business? Well, the truth is that until BCG and Bain & Company came along, corporate America wasn't run like that. You know, it was run for the benefit very largely of the senior people in the, in the company. They had to, of course, make a satisfactory return or they lost their jobs, but they weren't trying to optimize it. They weren't trying to think carefully about how to, every single business should have a competitive advantage. Uh, and what has transformed business in America in the last 50 years or so, I think, is that that ideology has actually become commonplace. And, you know, people don't necessarily do it very well, but it has changed the whole culture of business. People think about competitive advantage much more than they used to do. And that's very much down to two, two people, Bruce, Bruce and Bill. And, you know, the, the, the thing about it also, this is what, what Bruce started, was that 
it wasn't just a conceptual revolution, it was a demographic revolution as well. You know, Bruce started the idea of, you know, basically he was, he was 48 years old when he started the Boston Consulting Group, but he went out and hired people who were in their 20s. And he hired graduates from uh, the Harvard Business School, and he hired a few of the professors as well, although they, they generally work part-time, at least initially. Um, but the vast majority of the people in the firm were very young. And this had never been done before. You know, traditionally, consultants were people who, uh, you know, got grey hair, had seen it all, done it all. You know, they were basically selling experience. They weren't selling concepts. But Bruce said, no, strategy is conceptual. And I will hire the brightest people that I can. And if, they have, if they're 21 years old or 25 years old, that doesn't matter. I remember one... Uh, very vividly, uh, one uh, of the most junior, no, of the youngest rather, not the most junior, vice presidents in the London office when I started there. You know, um, I, I, a Swedish guy, I can't even remember his name. Anyway, this, this, guy, this guy said to me, he was, I think he was 23 years old or 24 years old, and he was a vice president of the firm. You know, someone who was genius, you know, fantastically successful. I said, don't you find it a disadvantage when you go into client organisations and, you know, you're 24 years old and you're talking to someone who's had decades of experience and, and you know, is, you know, probably in their 40s or 50s. You know, don't, don't you feel that's a disadvantage? You said, no, Richard, what you have to understand is that the younger you are, the more frightened of you they are. <laughs> and they, I, mean, I don't think that was necessarily, uh, I don't think that's the sort of thing that the powers that be would really want clients to hear, but, but, and he didn't say it to them. But, but, you know, there was something about this that was just, you know, it was so egregious, it was, it was so odd. That that all these young people were rushing around and 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 very confident that they could have fantastic value, so add fantastic value, and you know what happened as a result of that was that first of all the consulting firms, then the investment banks, then the venture capitalists, and eventually the last redoubt of the experienced general manager, which would be you know big corporations, started hiring and promoting young people. And, you know, that has, that, has, that has just changed the way of business. It's made everyone a lot sharper on their, on their metal. And it has vastly multiplied the talent that can be deployed in firms. And, of course, women as well now. You know, it was just, and Bruce and Bill hired lots of women. You know, they, they just wanted the best brains. And they didn't care how young they were. They didn't even care what their table manners were. Uh, you know, it was it was just so different from the way that management consulting, very gentlemanly, sort of, you know, um, polite. It's just totally different. And and I see that sociological change or demographic age change really as being something that nobody talks about, but has totally transformed the world of business and and for the better, in my opinion. Jason, I think we're going to have to draw this to a close because I'm, I'm getting a little bit tired. <laughs> if, if there are two or three other questions you want to ask, I'll, I'll do my best to answer them. I know it's because I'm rambling on and talking a lot. but uh... Oh, no, no, no. Richard, this is, this is so good. I was actually going to wrap up right now, um, which is perfect. Uh, so I'll, I'll, I'll wrap up. I'll ask you one final question. Um, kind of a flat philosophical thing and then we're good to go. Is that cool? 
Yeah, of course. Awesome. All right. So, I. Uh, in in eighty twenty, you you talk about the kind of the dichotomy and the comparison between happiness and money, where you say not only is happiness not money, it's not even like happiness. Money not spent today can be saved, compounded, multiplied, but happiness not spent today does not lead to happiness tomorrow. Um, what what is your advice for someone who is young and trying to build a business, but at the same time want to enjoy their life and not postpone happiness? I'm, well, I think it was Warren Buffett who said, you know, the idea of working very hard so that you can sort of, you know, have sex in your when when you're retired is <laughs> kind of like a contradiction in terms. And, and you know, he said it much more crisply and, and funnily than that. But he, he said, yeah, he was saying that. Yeah, the, I think I think what he actually said was was the idea of working at something that you don't enjoy or like because you will later be able to. Uh, uh, do what you want to do because you'll have money is like saving up your sex for your old age, and and um, you know if I if if I could preach to young people, I mean sort of you know people uh, in their let's say teens and twenties, you know everyone these days is in a huge rush to achieve. I mean you get sent resumes if you're ever hiring, you know you get sent resumes and you think these people. These people walk on water. I mean, these people, they might be 20 years old, but they've done this, that, and the other. It's unbelievably impressive, at least if you believe what they say. And, you know, you don't have to do that. You know, you don't have to do that. Life is not an examination, and life is not something that you need to attack as though, you know, you're going to drop dead tomorrow. Because, you know, it's much more important that you're at peace with yourself. It's much more important that you're happy. It's much more important that, you, that you're creative than it is to become the youngest person to do X, Y, or Z, you know, to the, the, the richest person, you know, in your, um, you know, your, your cohort of people from university or business school or whatever. You know, it's not like that. You know, the very successful people and I must make a plug here for my next book, which is coming out on the 13th of August, called Unreasonable Success and How to Achieve It. Please buy this book, because it's by far the best book I've ever written. I'm saying very immodestly, but it's true. And, and it talks about how you become very, very, very successful, unreasonably successful without the effort, and don't deserve the success in some ways. What, what that boils down to is creating something, and uh, there are nine things that I discovered, all very, very unreasonably successful people had in common. Um, and one of them, for example, is nobody talks about, is a transforming experience, which, uh, you know, makes people enormously, almost infinitely more powerful than uh, they were before. So the transforming experience of Bill Bain, for example, was going to work for Boston Consulting Group. If he hadn't have done that, if he had, he'd still be either a historian or working in the alumni office <laughs> of a senior university. You know, he would never ever have had the excitement of building a firm and the intellectual and financial benefit that came came from that. If he had not gone to work for that firm, you know, if you look back at very very successful people in business, uh, Jeff Be Bezos is is one of them. You know. The, the whole formula for Amazon was devised within a company called David E. Shaw uh, Desco. 
And Desco was the most unconventional and mysterious uh, alternative sort of hedge fund type of investment bank, really. Uh, highly quantitative. And they had the, the, you know, that David Shaw and Jeff Bezos worked together on the whole template for Amazon. And then very generously, Shaw let Bezos found a company outside uh, Desco. Uh, that was a transforming experience of, of, um, of Jeff Bezos. And if he hadn't have gone to the headhunter who he decided he didn't want to work on Wall Street anymore when he was 26. He said it was a horrible place, horrible people. Probably right about that. And, and, but the, the, hedge, hedge, the, the, sorry, the headhunter said to him, you know, go and talk to David Shaw because he runs an investment bank that's totally unlike any other that you will ever come across and maybe you'll like it. And if he hadn't have done that, then he would never, you know, we probably never have heard of the richest man in the world. Well, you know, it's very important that you have something like a transforming experience. And that's all in my book, Unreasonable Success and How to Achieve It. But the, the point is that life, you succeed in life as a result of cross currents, as a result of seizing opportunities that sort of come along that you might not recognise if you're in a hurry. And uh, you need to think very carefully about these things. So, so, you know, yes, be happy and be fulfilled uh, and make a lot of money as well. It is possible to do all of those things. Oh, so, so good, Richard. Uh, and I did not know about the book, so I will certainly uh, be involved in the promotion of that book and getting lots of my, my followers <laughs> to purchase it. Well, you might want to do, you might want to do another, another podcast with me that I can talk about the book, but, but, but not yet, obviously. Uh, so yes, uh, I, I, yeah, I think it's, I really do think that I've cracked the code of what you do to be extraordinarily successful without working very hard and without necessarily being terribly competent. I mean, a lot of the very, very successful people were, you know, people have this idea that they need to improve their performance. That's nonsense. So you don't need to improve your performance. What you need to improve is where, where you make the impact and how you do it. And, um, you know, there are lots of competent people in the world who are not unreasonably successful and you can hire them. Unreasonable success requires a different mentality. And that's what I write about in the book. I will totally would love to do another podcast uh, when that book comes out and do some promotion for that if you're up for it as well. I'd love to. Uh, I love that. Yes. And by then, I hope you've got two million followers rather than just a million. <laughs> Uh, don't set the bar too high. I'll, I'll <laughs> do some extra work here, Richard. Uh, <laughs> I'll do my best. All right, how's that? That's um, great, Jason. It's been a great pleasure talking to you. Great questions. Thank you very much indeed. Thank you so much, Richard, for your time. Um, is there anywhere where people can go right now? I'm going to say everyone who's, who's listening to this or watching this, if you haven't purchased or read the 80-20 Principle, please go to Amazon.com right now and order the book 80-20 Principle by Richard Koch, K-O-C-H, uh, and order that. Is there anywhere else they should go, Richard? I, th I would appreciate it if people follow me on Twitter, uh, where it's, uh, what is my Twitter handle? It's, it's uh, Richard Kosh 8020. Uh, Perfect. That's, yeah, yeah, Richard okay. Kosh 8020, yeah. And also, um, yeah, if people want to go to my website, that's uh, net. I, I couldn't afford the dot com, so it's dot net. <laughs> uh, well, you, you probably very astutely identified that the dot net dot com wasn't a huge factor. It wasn't 80 20, so. No, it wasn't. No. Uh, yeah. 
It's right, well, it, thank you. No, sorry, carry on. I was, I was going to say thank you so much for, for sharing your time and all this wisdom in, in your books. Um, they've meant so much to me. They truly, truly have from afar, and they've greatly impacted uh, my businesses and simply what I do and what I think about on a day-to-day -day basis. So thank you. For That's that. great, Jason. Thank you very much for your help.